Joyce Tapley, as a CEO of a multi-million dollar healthcare center, is a proven thought leader on matters of public health. We created this podcast because it's time for a real discussion about the state of healthcare in our nation. Welcome to a new episode of Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. Welcome to the Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. Today, we are honored to have a true national thought leader on our show, Ms. Deborah Hunter-Johnson. Allow me to tell you a little bit about, just a little bit about Deborah. She is the founder, president, and principal consultant of Reciprocity Consulting Group, Inc. As an adaptive leader, she is acknowledged for strengthening culture, advancing innovation, and prioritizing human capital management to transform organizations in the airline, automotive, energy, healthcare, technology, pharmaceutical, restaurant, and retail industries. She is considered a trusted advisor and an investor in startup companies. She capitalizes on the intersection of data, culture, and people across industries. After a career in corporate leadership roles at Chrysler Corporation and American Airlines, she founded Reciprocity Consulting Group in 2007. Deborah also is a startup investor with a focus on companies that merge traditional industries with technology, financial services, health and wellness, and underrepresented founders. She is a board advisor with Canaries, a diversity, equity, and inclusion data technology company and a mentor at Capital Factory, the most active startup investor accelerator in Texas. Deborah is board chair of the President's Advisory Board of the UT Southwestern Medical Center. Deborah also sits on the boards of the Texas Women's Foundation and the Dallas Economic Development Corporation. She is also the founding member of the Village Giving Circle, a group of African-American philanthropists who fund organizations and initiatives that positively impact the African-American community in North Texas. Deborah has a BA in English from the University of Michigan and a JD from Howard University School of Law, where she was the symposium editor of Howard Law Journal. She also attended the Carruth Institute for Entrepreneurship Certificate Program at Southern Methodist University. Ms. Deborah Hunter-Johnson, welcome to the show. Joyce, thank you very much. I am honored to be here with you today. And I'm really excited about all we're going to be talking about today. We've got some fantastic information that we want to share with folks, and I'm really interested to hear some of your journey to where you have come throughout your career. Deborah, you have been a leader in the area of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Can you give our listeners a digestible definition of those terms and their importance and value of DEI initiatives in the United States organizations? Joyce, I'll give it a try. I think 20 years ago, I might have very competently told you what those definitions mean. But as I have progressed in my career and my personal journey, what I have come to recognize is that as a society, we have to come to terms with certain things. First of all, we have to begin to recognize that we are all different and respect that. We have to recognize that there are systems in place in this country that have held people back, that have disenfranchised people, that have marginalized people. And we have to decide as a country if we want to remain relevant in this world and be a superpower, we are going to have to carry ourselves in a different way that's more inclusive, it's more welcoming in order to compete on the global landscape. We are spending far too much time infighting within our country over things that aren't consequential. And I've begun to realize that 
perhaps that's part of a playbook to distract with minutiae so that people don't recognize and identify the issues that they should be focused on. So no matter if we call it affirmative action or civil rights or mm-hmm. social justice, racial justice, you know, the racial reckoning, inclusion, belonging, whatever term we use, what we have to acknowledge is that the things that I just talked about that need to take place have to be done, no mm-hmm. matter what the definition is. That's right. And sometimes as a country, we get caught up in those words and the words become something of a symbol to people of losing power or being diminished in Mm -hmm. some way. And people use those terms as a way to dog whistle to others. That's right. Critical race theory. Most people in the country don't really know the actual definition of it. And what I've begun to recognize is that all those definitions are irrelevant. We really have to become a more humane society in order to have a civilization that's going to survive. And if you look at history, all the answers are in history. We've seen what has happened when the resources and power are in a small percentage of the population so that you don't have a middle class and then you don't have hope. You have anarchy. And that's consistently been the story of the world. And we have to decide intentionally that we want to do it differently and learn from the lessons of history. Mm -hmm. So what that means is for underrepresented folks, marginalized folks, you can't lose hope. You have to play the long game. You know, the book cast was very enlightening for me because it was the first tome that had the history of this country Mm -hmm. in one place. We usually have had to piecemeal it all together and figure it out. But that gave you a chronological view of this country. And it was very much an eye-opener because clearly folks are playing the long game. And underrepresented individuals in this country have to start playing the long game, too. Yes, we do. That's a really good opening. Could you talk a little bit more about why the issues of DEI are so controversial? In my opinion, I think it's because of power. Because you can look at all societies, and when you have people in power, they want to keep the power. You see it within races, within genders. So a lot of people position it as a white-black issue. It's really a power issue. Who gets to control the resources? And when somebody is saying, we're about to do something that's going to lessen your power, lessen your impact, Mm -hmm. lessen your ability to control resources, it does feel threatening and frightening to people who are focused solely on power. If you're looking at humanity or if you're a person of faith, If you're a person that knows this lifetime is just one lifetime, I'm a small piece of this whole universe, then you begin to realize that your actions, the energy you put into the universe is really important because in the aggregate, if we have a lot of power-focused, ego-focused energy in the universe, it just creates bad outcomes. And if you are for the greater good, you can see that You know, maybe me having a little bit less, because if it can lift someone else up, you know, we kind of know a rising tide raises all boats. Yes. And it would be great to have a society where everybody's minimally taken care of. They have health care. You know, they have a living wage. They can feed their children. You know, they can give to their church. All of those things create good societies 
where everybody can feel good. And so when you talk about DEI, in my opinion, that's what it's about. It's about leveling things out because we have to be honest as a country. We've had systems in place that have given some people a head start and have held people back. And it's not going to end well if we continue to try to do that. And that's why those types of initiatives matter. But no matter what you want to call it at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. you know, as a country, if we want to live to what we say we are, that means everybody has to be okay in this country. That is right. Let's talk about the systems of oppression that represent the root cause of inequities in healthcare outcomes. What do you see are some of the examples of oppression that impact healthcare? You know, oppression is a strong word, and I analogize it to the difference between racism and bias, because racism, in my mind, is more of an intentional action. But I see the bigger evil as being bias because it's unconscious and people don't see it. And so I see a lot of bias in healthcare, going all the way back to studies that suggested that black people could tolerate pain, pain more. And right. so they needed less yeah. right. medication or that black people's innate intelligence was less. So if they had a concussion as a professional football player, the value of their life was less than a player who wasn't white. And a lot of these so-called fact-based assumptions that came out of medicine are still there today and being taught to medical students. So many changes have been made, and I'm heartened by that. And I'm heartened by the fact that medical schools are recognizing that the medical profession has to reflect the patient population. For instance, I was recently at UT Southwestern Medical Center Outstanding Admitted Students Day. It is where they bring in all of the underrepresented minority students who have been admitted to the medical school. They Uh haven't accepted yet. Right, right. So they're still trying to cultivate them to come over. Mm -hmm. And 31% of the students they've offered admission to are underrepresented. And that's huge. Yeah. When you think about the impact that can have in the profession year over year, having those different perspectives. So we have to start with those types of things. When you have people at the table, you have people making decisions and bringing different perspectives in, that can be a game changer right there. So it's lots of little things that you have to do within systems to make changes. But I do feel it has to start with the practitioners because they're there every day. They can be in the room of a patient saying, well, we know we have these modalities. We know we have these interventions. We should be offering this to this patient. We shouldn't triage and decide this person's life is not worthy of that intervention. That's a good point, too. I appreciate your sharing that. I wanted to talk a little bit about Planned Parenthood, because I know you have experience with them, too. How does Planned Parenthood and bone marrow donors and the programs fit in the world of health outcomes and inequities? I think those both are very important organizations, as are many, because they can take a deep dive into areas that, you know, traditional hospitals or healthcare providers cannot. So there's an organization, it's national, but there are local chapters, and there's one here in Dallas called DKMS, and it helps people find bone marrow matches, you know, blood stem cell donors. 
and they go deeply into it. And I am dealing with a real-life situation now with mm-hmm. a good friend who needs a blood stem cell match. Yeah. He is African-American. Which there are not very many. Exactly. It's about 6-7% in the national registry. And so we are hosting a series of events okay. to help find a match. We're doing our first event February 26th at the Potter's House because he works there. His name is Frank Dyer. And part of what we're doing is educating people. Yes, good. Because most people are afraid to do it. You're going to take some of my stem cells. What am I going to do if I need some? And it's like, they're going to regenerate. Right. We have to educate people. Our goal, in addition to finding a match for him, is to increase the donor registry. A traditional hospital would not be able to take a deep dive into that area. So that's why DKMS is an important resource. Okay. Planned Parenthood, you know, so many people with so many points of view about Planned Parenthood and their mission. And anytime you hear people automatically say Planned Parenthood means killing babies, that means they didn't read their mission and they don't know much about them. So before, you know, last year, 3%, only 3% of -hmm. Planned Parenthood's clinical services were abortion-related. 97% were cancer screenings, traditional gynecological services, birth control, family planning. They even did screenings for men. You pay what you can afford to pay. But somehow that noble mission got tied up in a very small part of the work that they do. Say that again. Say that again about the percentage that's related to abortions. 3%. 3 People need to hear that. Right. So 97% was towards family planning. So women who did not want to have abortions could get birth control, college students, Mm -hmm. minimal cost or free. But nobody talked about that. Well, I used Planned Parenthood when I was in school. Mm -hmm. So I I went, that's where I went because I, they said they had a nurse clinic at the university, but I needed more than what the nurse could do. Yes, absolutely. I'm definitely someone who understands that they do a lot more absolutely than what most folks are advertising or with the message they're trying to That's get That's right. Out. And in the state of Texas, if you're an entrepreneur like me, mm-hmm. your health care is very expensive yeah. because we didn't participate in the health care exchange. And so you have to pay for insurance that very few people take. And that's yeah. another reason why we really need to think about the fact that every citizen in this country deserves a certain level of health care. It's better for society because otherwise people are running where? To the, to emergency, the emergency room, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's we right. said that in unison because yes. we see that. Yes. And that's not good for no. the country because the taxpayers pay, but you're paying at an elevated cost and people aren't focused on wellness. They're just focused on emergency care when it's acute and dire. And so organizations like Planned Parenthood, DKMS, the other organizations that really are tapping unmet needs are very critical to managing health inequities in our country. I appreciate your perspective on that. Well, we've got some more to talk about. So we're going to go to a break for a little bit. For those who are listening, please stay on because we'll be back soon. You are listening to Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. And my special guest is Ms. Deborah Hunter Johnson. Inspire Art Dallas uses advocacy, fundraising, and public events 
to encourage the flourishing of the City of Dallas Public Art Program and to enrich public art experiences for residents and visitors to the City of Dallas. I'm Kay Kalos, Public Art Program Manager for the City of Dallas Office of Arts and Culture. My name is Kaya and I'm almost a teenager. I have a real problem. My daddy and my grandfather love pie. For my daddy, it's apple. For my poppy, it's anything lemon. But they won't bring me any pie. I don't think that's fair. They always go to Judy Pie on Main Street in Grapevine, where Miss Judy and her bakers make 20 different kinds of pies and cinnamon rolls on the weekend. But I don't get any. They tell me I can have pie when I'm a teenager, like pie is only for grown-ups or something. Can someone please call my daddy and my poppy and tell them I need pie? In the meantime, you can go to JudyPie.com, or if you're in Grapevine, Texas, visit Judy Pie on Main Street. And if my daddy or my poppy are there, tell them that Kaya wants a piece of pie. Welcome back to Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley. I am your host, and I am here with a special, beautiful guest, Ms. Deborah Hunter Johnson. All right, Deborah. Yes, ma'am. Let's talk about the things that you've been accomplishing in life, all the different successes you've had. You're one of a few doing what you're doing. So, as a black woman in Fortune 500 companies, how is that experience, and what are you taking from that, and what can you share with others so that they can have the level of confidence? to excel, even if it's in a predominantly white company or an industry where there's not a lot of black women represented? Well, I have to say change is afoot. I think when I became an officer at American Airlines, I was a little bit of a unicorn, and I recognized that, and I recognized that I was there to push down doors and push through ceilings that predecessors had pushed through that allowed me to be in that space. But I'm happy to say now, you look at companies today, and they are very different. You see people of color, you see black women in positions of power. And that's why people have to start recognizing you've got to understand how to navigate in this world because it is changing whether you like it or not. And the decision makers are increasingly looking like people like you and me. So the people who don't understand that and don't know how to communicate with us and interact with us and influence us, they aren't going to be successful. They're going to find themselves sitting on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. But I see it every day. If you look on LinkedIn, a lot of the networks I'm in, every week I see new promotions into general counsel positions, assistant general counsel positions, vice president positions, CFO positions. So the world is changing. And in the Private sector, even more so. So many women are starting companies and being successful. And that is what it needs to be. We need to be able to have the opportunities to Mm -hmm. take whatever chances we want to take and get into whatever industries and do as many different things we want to do because we are capable. Absolutely. And you're seeing second generation, third generation entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And they are ready and they are scaling and growing selling businesses, starting different ones. What's really important, too, is that we're helping each other. Absolutely. Because there have been Mm -hmm. times when, at least it's been put out there in the public, that when a few of us get to the top or close to the top, we're not reaching and helping others. But we're doing that a lot more as well. And that's what I think is wonderful. I think that's wonderful, too. And I think that, you know, historically, 
many of us bought into some of the stereotypes that we heard about our own mm-hmm. culture. And we thought we were exceptional and special <laughs> and everybody else, you know, right. was stereotypical. And I think we recognize now that those narratives aren't true that and that correct. we bought into those narratives and the world is changing yes. and people, you know, that's one good thing about social media. I mean, there are bad things about social mm-hmm. media, but it has sort of democratized voice. And so you see stories you wouldn't otherwise see. That's true. Because there were a handful of powerful news organizations that decided what made the headlines, Mm -hmm. you know, what was on the front page of the business section. But today, anybody with a Twitter account or an Instagram can put it out there. And then society decides what goes viral Mm -hmm. and what stories are important. Yeah, the technology is something else. I love Mm -hmm. it. I love it. Let's talk a little bit about UT Southwestern Medical Center Capital Project. Could you talk about what they're accomplishing and what their goals are for the near future? There is a lot going on at UT Southwestern right now. Very exciting things. We opened up a uh, clinic and business offices at Redbird Mall. Right. And then also up in Plano. So we're south and north. And we have a joint project going on with University of Texas at Dallas, the School of Engineering and Computer Science. We are jointly building the Texas Instruments Biomedical Engineering Building. That is a wonderful thing also. And we are also creating a school of public health, which is much needed. The first class will enter this year. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I that, went through a school of public health as well right, to get my master's. Right. So you know I'm excited about yes, that. Yes, very excited. And then we were able to get 900 mental health beds oh, for this area as well. So we have a lot of things going on there. And we have people in leadership that are focused on addressing health inequities, making UT Southwestern a more inclusive place. And so there is kind of an excitement and a renewed energy there that I'm really pleased to be a part of right now. I'm glad you talked about those. But could you just go in a little bit more detail? Now, the sites that you said you opened, one in... Redbird Mall. What was the name of that site or what is the name of that site? It's just a UT Southwestern clinic. There. Okay. And so we were very intentional in putting business offices as well as a clinic there because people behave differently when it's their place of business where they go to work every day. They think about it differently than just being a clinic serving the local community. And it makes it easier for folks in the southern sector to access our resources. You know, we have a range of offerings, x-ray, you know, from flu shots, but Mm -hmm. also to x-rays and EKGs Mm -hmm. and MRIs and all those types of things. So it is, again, helping to balance out inequity that is in the southern sector, access to that type of resource. And Parkland also, to be fair, also opened up a clinic at Redbird also. So there's Parkland and UT Southwestern. We do a lot of things jointly. And the resources at Redbird are going to be growing more and more. We're really excited about the renovation there. Full disclosure, I'm an investor at Redbird Mall. And we are building out that area differently. There will be a lot of restaurants on the exterior, multi-use, so you can have dinner, there's retail, get your flu shot, you know, all at the same time. That's great. And then on the north side in Plano, it's a UT Southwestern UT side Southwestern with the same also. types of... Same types of services. services. Okay, mm-hmm. great. How can greater inclusivity be achieved across the healthcare system? Whew, 
Well, for me, you know, I've been in this space for a while mm-hmm. trying to figure out how do we make spaces more inclusive. And to me, we have to look at the systems. I mean, we can look at individual behavior, but we really have to look closely at some of our historical practices. And we have to have different perspectives at the table when we are doing it. And we have to not think of it as the flavor of the month, but as something that we do regularly. Because as the world changes, the needs change. And we're new at this because when you think about, for instance, we talk about this Americans with Disabilities Act, that was just legislation that was put into place in 1990. So it's not that old. So what were people doing the hundreds of years before in this country? They, people in wheelchairs, people who had physical and mental impairments could not enjoy the benefits of moving around in this country and interacting and engaging as That's other people. Right. Could. So we just have to remember we're new to this. We have to continuously improve and we have to listen to all voices. What do you think we should do? Part of it is really identifying individuals that believe in the direction you're trying to go. But the systems have to change, too. And mm-hmm. the people who are in control of a lot of the systems hopefully will bring in new, diverse ideas and folks with different areas of experience so that we can work together. But it's really embracing the diversity that's needed in order for us to be able to reach out to those and include those who are being left behind. And it, we've got enough resources. We have enough technology. We have enough very intelligent people. We just need to agree to adjust how we do business. That's true. And accept the realities that the folks that are here are going to continue to be here and, and more will come. And that just brings more knowledge and skills and ideas and successes, but it takes a wealth of folks to do that, not just one or two or the the ones that are in a small category. It it really takes some of everyone, but we do have to agree to change how things are structured Mm -hmm. so that it includes everyone. And I think have a fundamental agreement that everybody deserves to have good health. Everybody deserves that. And not only that, but if we say you're going to get access when you walk through the doors, whether you have all the money or not, We do better with prevention and primary care versus having somebody not be able to access those primary care services and then use that emergency room unnecessarily. So just the mere fact that, you know, UT Southwestern, our health centers, our community-based health centers are trying to expand and reach the folks so that they're not having to travel so long, such a far distance. I mean, the services are there. Let's give them that health care that they need. We also need to gain their trust that when they do come to see us, they really are going to be cared for in every aspect of the services we offer, regardless of what they look, how they look, how much knowledge they have, what their age is, what their gender is, what their gender identity is, and whether or not they have, you know, any money and all of that. We need more caring people. I know we've said, we throw out that phrase of, you know, how would you want your mother to be treated? That's how, or your grandmother be treated. But oftentimes we don't even treat ourselves the way we need to. So if we can start, you know, again, trying to love ourselves even more, then I would imagine it would be a little easier to love other people, too. Absolutely. So I know that's a little extra, but I, there's a lot of just simple ways I think that we can make changes if mm-hmm. we're willing to do that. Absolutely. Because we've got the talent and, you know, lots of ideas and everything else. Right. But I think we, in addition to that, have to dispel some of the myths. You know, we've begun to sort of criminalize poverty. Somehow 
people who are poor criminals yeah. somehow really? going no. hand in hand. Yeah. You know, I see on my next door app a lot, you know, there's a panhandler. Somebody should call the police. Really? Is this a policing issue? Or is this somebody who's hungry and needs a place to stay? And is that a law enforcement issue? And I think it's the same thing with health care. People aren't trying to game the system. People aren't lazy. It is hard to access high-quality care unless you are with an employer who provides it. And there are huge segments of the population who work that just don't have access to it. And we can't ignore that any longer. We have to redesign the system to make it work for the reality of the country and bring some humanity to it and love, as you said. I always throw that in there because it's how I feel. It's, it's just we do need to care about others. Mm-hmm. And in the words of uh, Burt Bacharach, you know, he passed away this week. Yeah. Love will keep us together. And he was the <laughs> one that did the Dionne Warwick song. That's right. What the sure world did. Yeah, needs she, now. Yeah, it's love. It's That's love. right. That's right. Do you have any other topics or any other statements you want to make for our listeners? Well, I want to applaud you for the work that you are doing to bring awareness to issues in healthcare from a different perspective, to help educate everyone. And I'm pleased to be a part of this. And, you know, the thing I say to everybody right now, and I heard Ariana Huffington say this, Mm -hmm. we are drowning in data, but we're starved for wisdom. There's a lot of information out there. We're just, it's like drinking from a fire hose to absorb it all. But it's the wisdom that we need. And many times the wisdom is listening to the past and understanding the lessons that history shows us. Because wisdom is knowledge and experience. And sometimes you don't want to wait a lifetime (laughs) to become wise. You don't have enough time. And so you want ways to accelerate that. And that's what I say to people. You know, you want to gain wisdom as quickly as you can because that's going to kind of be your guidepost for life. And we have a lot of folks that have been around for a while that yeah, could share some of that, that wisdom. If Absolutely. we would just ask the question and sit and listen. Yes. And I think the two-way street, the wise people need to impart it and then stand back and let people move forward with it. Sometimes we're in the way a little bit too long. You know, I'm moving into auntie status where I need to sit down and let young people take it and guide them. But I don't have to have the microphone. I could pass it off to them. So I appreciate the part that you are playing in making this wisdom available to people. Well, I appreciate your spending time with me because rarely do I find a young black female who has done the magnitude of work for individuals as well as for our community and across many different industries. Well, you thank you for that. I know lots I, of people then. I need to introduce yeah, you to I guess some so, ladies then. I, yeah, I haven't been exposed to everything, <laughs> but I'm honored that you have spent some time with me and sharing what you have gone through in your life. So thank you so much for thank being you. on the show. We are at the end of our healthcare chat with Joyce Tapley and Ms. Deborah Hunter Johnson. I thank you all for listening. And Ms. Johnson, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And that concludes another installment of Healthcare Chat. For all upcoming and previous episodes, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit the subscribe button and you will always be notified when a new podcast is published. Until next time, thank you again for listening to Healthcare Chat with Joyce Tapley.